Recorded live. Hello. Praise Yahweh and welcome to Christogenia on TalkShoe. This is Friday, January 20th, 2012. Finally got that right. Okay, I have my detractors. I'm, I'm going to address some of the garbage tomorrow night, maybe. Uh, I'll be on the road tomorrow. I'm going to do a program, and, and Matthew Ott's going to join me later on. I'm going to present my paper, Heirs of the Covenant. And, and I'm also going to talk about all Israel being saved. Some people just don't get it. I happen to believe Isaiah chapter 45. I happen to believe Paul's words in Roman chap- Romans chapter 11. I'm quoting the scripture. I'm a belief in that scripture, and there are clowns that call themselves Christian identity pastors that have the nerve to say that because I believe that scripture, I'm a liar. That's absolutely incredible. The dogs of November can howl all year long. It's not going to change the truth. When you open up a Chicago Jews newspaper in the morning and you don't find yourself vilified there, then you've spent yesterday to no accord, to quote Adolf Hitler. And I'll leave it at that. I've been answering my detractors on the Christogenia Forum in a section called Christian Identity Directions. And that's all I'll say about that. Tonight we're going to present James chapters 4 and 5. Because of its importance and because of the ways in, in which the chapter is, also, it is often abused, I thought to repeat tonight James chapter 3 and to present it in a matter a little more pointed than how it was presented last week. A lot of it will be redundant. I feel that perhaps it's necessary. So please bear with me. You must not produce many teachers, my brethren, knowing that we shall receive a greater judgment, for we all fail often. If anyone does not fail in word... He is a perfect man, able to guide with the bridle, even the whole body. Well, we've only had one of those, right? Yahshua Christ. Even if the bridles of horses are put into their mouths for which to persuade them for us, the horse being very large and the idea that the bit on the bridle is very small, then we maneuver their whole body. Behold also, there are such great ships, and being driven by severe winds, maneuvered by the smallest rudder, being driven straight where impulse desires. Thusly also the tongue is a small body part and boasts loudly. Behold, how small a fire ignites so great a forest. And the tongue is a fire, an ornament of injustice. The tongue sits among our body parts, soiling the whole body and setting ablaze the course of existence and being burned by Gehenna. Gehenna! The destruction caused by the fiery trials of this life. The wars and strife caused by the tongue. All of these things are, of course, true. But we must consider how and what kind of speech causes men to slip. And in whose perception do men slip? One man may think that you have erred when he does not like what you say. But what is sin to slip in the eyes of man or to slip in the eyes of God? to have sound principles and stick to them, or to be a compromiser. It may well be that that man's pride which causes him to think badly about you is what guides his heart. 
Therefore, and fortunately, we, the children of God, if indeed we are children of God, have only one judge, Yahshua Christ, and one guide, which is his word. The context to James's words here is set in verse 1, and they're reinforced in verse 14. We cannot take James's words here out of context, as some would like to do, in order to attempt to show that they themselves are being criticized unfairly. I would say that's just tough. James is not telling us that we cannot be critical of men. Rather, at the end of James chapter 5, the apostle tells us that we should indeed correct or seek to correct our brethren. Rather, James here tells us that the tongue, the smallest organ, can cause a whole bunch of trouble. And how can it do that? James is talking in verse 1 that there should not be many teachers because they shall receive the greater judgment. In verse 14, James says, Do not exalt and lie against the truth. All these things are in the same context. This is one conversation, not multiple fractured little bits of speech. Those who claim to be teachers, yet exalt themselves and lie against the truth, teach a false gospel, they are the men who James talks about here. A world of iniquity is created by false teachings in the name of Christ. A world of iniquity is created when you make the false False claims, such as the idea that somehow God's going to accept bastards. That man is a fool. For every species of both beasts and birds and reptiles and sea creatures is tamed and has been tamed by the species of man. A reference to Genesis chapter 1, as I explained last week, that Adamic man, and this verse helps prove it, there's only one Adamic man, there's only one Adam, there was a first man Adam, and Christ is the second man Adam, the first man, Adam, being God's first direct son. The rest of us are grandchildren. The Cro-Magnon origin of Adam. That's found in the Jews, Zechariah Sitchin, and in certain clowns calling themselves identity pastors. But a tongue no one of men is able to tame. It is an unstable evil, full of death-bearing poison. With it we praise the prince and father, and with it we would curse men who have been born according to the likeness of Yahweh. Adam, our first father, and all of us who are pure descendants of that man. Cursing men doesn't mean saying dirty words. It means calling down imprecations upon them, wishing them evil which they don't deserve. From the same mouth, proceeds praise and curse. There is no need, my brethren, for these things to be so. Does any spring from the same opening flow sweet and bitter? Is it possible, my brethren, for a fig tree to make olives or a grapevine to make figs? Or perhaps a fig tree crossed with a grapevine to make anything decent. Neither does salt make sweet water. Who is wise and knowledgeable among you? He must show by good conduct his works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and rivalry in your hearts, do not exult and lie against the truth. Lying against the truth. That is how the tongue sets off a world of iniquity. Teaching lies contrary to the word of God. That is how the tongue gets a man into trouble. 
That is why those who pretend to be teachers shall receive the greater judgment. If I speak against God, then I pray to be corrected. If I do not repent, God will correct me. If I speak against men in the light of the word of God, and they blaspheme me and resort to slanders, then I praise God. Because as Yahshua Christ told us in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when men hate you, and when they separate from you and they reproach and they cast your name out as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in accordance with these things did their fathers to the prophets. Submitting to the truth of the scriptures, that is true meekness. Playing politely with your fellow man, that's not meekness. You might be polite, but you're not exhibiting true meekness. As the popular culture would have us believe today, the serpent in the garden, he was playing politely. He sure as hell wasn't being meek. Meek, Submission to God and to his word is the true meekness of Scripture. And that is real and authentic humility. As we see James explain here, heresies of doctrine most often come out of pride of heart. As he says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and rivalry in your hearts, do not exult and lie against the truth. Rather, pray and put those things away from you. This is the source of nearly all of our disputes. Some disputes are honest because not all scripture is so easy to understand. However, those disputes are usually very minor and have no real relevancy or danger to sound doctrine. However, there are many people in Christian identity who have not shed their Catholic, their Baptist, their Jehovah's Witnesses, or other unsound beliefs, other baggage that they brought in to Christian identity with them, and they're trying to mold Christian identity into their baggage. They're trying to mold what we try to do is seek the truth of the Scripture, and they try to mold that into their former beliefs because they pick and choose what they like to hear and they don't like to give up their errors. And there are just as many others who imagine themselves to be the revealers of some great new and unique idea which will somehow save us from error. These themselves are far greater errors. The trumpeting of frauds such as Ron Wyatt, Jordan Maxwell, Zechariah Sitchin, the clowns that tout the so-called Mayan calendar prophecies. Antichrist garbage. Elenin, Nibiru, and many other supposed discoveries, such as imagining themselves to be one of the two witnesses, or the clowns that imagine themselves to be one of the 144,000 of the Revelation, thereby attempting to exalt themselves over their fellow men. All of these things are error produced and nurtured by pride. All of these lies, when we fall for them, only lead us into reproach and into an indefensible position in the light of true biblical scholarship. These lies actually discredit us. How can we willingly spread these lies and even care to face our Redeemer? Or perhaps the people that spread these lies don't really plan on facing our Redeemer. 
Maybe some of them know better. But they'll never see the light of day being twice dead. If doctrine is not explicit in the original languages of Scripture, then forget about it. It's not doctrine at all. If truth cannot be established in the light of Scripture and by two or three witnesses, and also stand in the context of the rest of Scripture, in other words, you haven't chosen three witnesses out of context, then it is not truth at all. Back to James. This is not the wisdom coming down from above, but earthly, animal, demoniacal. As John says in chapter 4 of his epistle, we are to test every spirit to see whether or not they are of God or of the world. Spirits born of the world are not from God. And they as we're told in the Enoch literature and in other apocryphal books, they are the embodied spirits of demons. As demons are, dis- demons are the disembodied spirits of bastards, then naturally bastards are the embodied spirits of demons. When someone starts teaching false doctrines in the name of Christianity, such as the idea that bastards can somehow be saved, which, which I've heard personally from a certain clown that considers himself to be a Christian identity pastor, then those people indeed reveal their demonic nature. Back to James. For where jealousy and rivalry, rivalry are, there is instability and every mean deed like writing 35 pages of lies about someone twice a week to send it out in emails. As John says in, uh, I'm sorry, this describes all of those who have nothing better to do than to sit in forums and make ad hominem attacks rather than seeking and listening to the word of God. Or if they do not like what is being offered, going off and studying it better for themselves. By harassing Christians who do seek the word of God, they make manifest their jealousy and cause strife in others. And so we have our trolls. Back to James. But the wisdom from above is first indeed pure, then peaceful, reasonable, obedient, full of acts of mercy and good fruits, unhesitating, unhypocritical. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, by those making peace. And as we could see in the scripture, the peacemakers are not the world's compromisers. They're not the nice guys trying to smooth everything over all the time. The real peacemakers are those who seek to uphold the word of God, no matter what. As the proverb says, he that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men. But he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. And any man that thinks he is above criticism makes himself to be his God. James chapter 3 cannot be used by a man to put himself above criticism. James 5, 19 and 20 state, My brethren, if one from among you should stray from the truth, and one should correct him, you must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall cover a multitude of errors. We can save each other from sin by telling each other the truths about sin and the errors that it leads to. We can only save a man's soul 
his life in this world, that spirit which God has imparted to Adamic man, that cannot die. And we will discuss that. We save the lives of our brethren by telling them the truth. If perhaps they listen to us and return to the ways of God. James chapter 4, verse 1. From where are battles, and from where are fights among you? Is it not from this, from your pleasures making war among your members? Here James is talking metaphorically of the body of Christians as members, much like Paul also often did. Most commentators interpret this verse at a personal level, and while it can be interpreted that way, that is not merely what James is referring to. James is also talking at the national or tribal level. The 12 tribes scattered abroad are the people who are the object of this epistle. And for many centuries, they fought with each other, whether they be Roman or Greek or Scythian or Parthian, seeking to better themselves by procuring one another's goods and one another's lands. James 4.2 you desire, and you have not. You murder and strive, and are not able to succeed. You fight and battle. You do not have reason, I'm sorry, you do not have for reason that you do not request or ask in prayer. You request and do not receive for reason that you request evil, in order that you be consumed in your pleasures. People often pray with the hope of satiating their own lust, of seeing their own desires fulfilled. Money, cars, girls. Rather than seek after our own lust and after the goods or lands of our brother, we should seek after God, and God will make certain that we have our necessary worldly amenities. Paul taught likewise, where he said in Galatians chapter 5, and I quote from verse 16, Now I say you must walk in the spirit, and desire of the flesh you should not at all fulfill. The flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Indeed, these are in opposition to one another, in which case you should not do these things that you desire. But if you are led by the spirit, that spirit of God within us, if indeed we're the children of God. You are under no law. There's no need to be. The law is for the flesh. Manifest are the deeds of the flesh. Such things are fornication, uncleanliness, licentiousness, idolatry, the use of drugs, hostility, contention, rivalry, wrath, intrigue, dissension, sects or heresies, Envyings, drunkenness, revelries, and things like these, which I, meaning Paul, have announced to you beforehand, just as I have said before, that they who practice such things shall not inherit Yahweh's kingdom. Of course not. When it comes time, we will all stop practicing these things. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control, there is no law against such things, but they of the anointed. This is where I say we will all stop practicing these things, because we all have practiced these things at one time or another. 
But they of the anointed crucify the flesh along with those affections and those desires. That's our goal in life as children of God, to overcome the flesh. And at the same time, overcome the devil, who's the panderer to those, to those lusts and affections and desires, the enemies of God. If we live in the Spirit, in the Spirit we should also walk. We should not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Back to James. Adulterers, do you not know that love of society is hatred for God? He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. Or do you suppose that vainly the scripture says which envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us? I can't determine from where James is quoting the scripture. From which envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us. It's not found in the Septuagint in those words. Yet it may be a reference to Genesis chapter 6. And, and it would be a summation of some statements in Genesis chapter 6. Where it is evident that the spirit of Yahweh within men strives with the fleshly nature of man. A lesson which is also often taught by Paul. That, that spirit of God that God has imparted into us, that is our true life, is always at war with this fleshly body, with its hormones and, and its desires, and, and the desires of the flesh, which leads us to lust and to sin. Here in James 4.4, 4, worldly people are people, worldly people, I'm sorry, are called adulterers. Our ancient forefathers were adulterers because they sought the things of the world to accept and to please and to have communion and intercourse with the other races and to learn their ways rather than to isolate themselves from the aliens and seek to please God, which is what they were commanded to do. When we engage with the world, we all too often are compelled to compromise the word of God, even so far as to compromise our own racial integrity. We cannot do both. We cannot please the world and still please God. We cannot seek to be successful in the world, to have power and wealth, and yet seek the mercy of God, because success in the world necessitates compromising the word of God. Satan, a collective word for the adversaries of God, they are the princes of this world. And to be successful in the world, we have to please them. Therefore, we must renounce the world and not seek its comforts of wealth and power and riches. The rewards of the world are temporary. And we seek the greater rewards promised to us by God. Therefore, if we seek the things of the world, God may very well deny us and not provide us with those things. But if we seek anything, that with it 
we intend in our hearts authentically to serve God. Perhaps he will either give us what we seek or perhaps he will convince us in our hearts that we should be content without it because we really don't need it and he will give us the opportunities of serving him in some other way. For this reason, Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, But if we expect that which we do not see, through patient endurance we wait. And in like manner, the Spirit assists us with our weaknesses. For that which we should pray for, regarding what there is need of, we do not know. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible utterances. And he who searches the hearts knows that which is in the mind of the Spirit. Because in accordance with Yahweh, it intercedes for the saints. The saints are those people in the world who actually have that spirit. But we know that to those who love Yahweh, all things work together for good. To those who in accordance with purpose, with his purpose, are called. Because those whom he has known beforehand, he has also appointed beforehand, every one of them conformed to the image of his Son, for him to be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy. While those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors, or as the King James probably has it, glorifies. Verse 6. But more greatly, he gives favor, meaning Yahweh, on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor or grace to the humble. Reading the Greek, there are many citations of the Old Testament in James's epistle which lead me to believe with all certainty that the Septuagint was his primary reference. Here I'm going to compare this saying of James to Proverbs 3.34 and to Job 22.29 in order to establish that. I'm going to compare this saying of James to the King James Version and in the Septuagint, using Sir Francis Breton's English version and not my own. James says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 from the King James. Surely he scorns the scorners, but he gives grace to the lowly. Proverbs 3.34 from the Septuagint. Yahweh, or the Lord, resists the proud, Now, I could have translated opposes the arrogant in that same manner, resists resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, favor to the humble. So we see that James 4.6 is identical to Proverbs 3.34 in the Septuagint. Now, Job 22.29 from the King James, when men are cast down, Then thou shalt say, there is lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. 
Job 22.29 from the Septuagint. Because thou hast humbled thyself, and thou shalt say, man is behaved proudly, but he, meaning God, shall save him that is of lowly eyes, meaning um, the man of true humility. The truly humble man is not one who is polite to his fellow man only. The truly humble man is a man who subjects himself to the word of God. Of course, we should be polite to our brother when our brother is worthy of that polity. But we have no compulsion to offer men comfort when they are opposed to the word of God. Polity is not humility. True humility is obedience to God in spite of the desires or the expectations of men. And James explains that in the very next verse, in verse 4-7, where he says, Therefore subject yourselves to God, but stand against the false accuser, and he shall flee from you. Let's read verse 6 again. Yeah. But more greatly he gives favor or grace, on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. And then James says in verse 7, Therefore subject yourselves to God. So we see that true humility is when a man subjects himself to the word of God, not when he's simply nice to people. But stand against the false accuser, or the devil, and he shall flee from you. You cannot separate verses 6 and 7. The meaning is confluent. The context of James's definition of humility, of a humble man, is a man who subjects himself to God not a man who's simply nice to everybody, that everybody likes. A man that everybody likes, a man that wants to be everybody's friend, that man is a compromiser and a sycophant. A kiss-ass. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Subjecting ourselves to the word of God, we have a promise that the devil, the false accuser, will flee from us. Therefore, Paul, at Ephesians 6.11, tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's, damn, it's a damned shame that there are Christian, people that call themselves Christian identity pastors and get away with it in some circles who want to compromise with the devil, who want to be everybody's friend, who want to make excuses and squeeze the other races and, and create an entire gospel to squeeze all the enemies of God into the kingdom of heaven. That's absolutely incredible. It, it's, it's Catholic. It, it's Presbyterian. It, it's Baptist. But it's not Christianity. James 4.8 Draw near to Yahweh, and he shall draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. 
Paul at Hebrews 10.22 states, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A double-minded man, as James explained in the first chapter of this epistle, is unstable in all his ways. A man who would reject the word of God, creating his own doctrine while claiming to be Christian. A man who lies and exalts himself against the truth, as James explains here, that is a double-minded man. James 4.9 Endure hardship and lament and weep. Your laughter must turn into grief and joy into sorrow. The children of God, as Paul says, in Hebrews chapter 12, are destined to undergo trial in this world. If you're not tried in this world, then you're a bastard and not a son. Both Peter and Paul made similar statements that we must rejoice in our inevitable trials. From Job chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it discouraged, slay suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, the princes of this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. The trial, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Yahshua Christ. And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, from verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. The people who would truly stick by the word of God, those people will be persecuted or can at least expect it at diverse times. Who has saved us? The power of God who has saved us meaning the children of Israel, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, in other words, the things that we do, we can't save ourselves, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Yahshua before the world began. We were destined for it from the beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, the Father of compassions. Yahweh is also of all encouragement. He is encouraging us upon every one of our afflictions, if indeed we're his children, for us to be able to encourage those who are in every affliction. You have to suffer before you can offer encouragement to those who are going to suffer. Through the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by Yahweh. Because just as the sufferings of the anointed, meaning the collective people of God, are abundant to us, in that manner, through the anointed, our encouragement also is abundant. Now, whether we are afflicted on behalf of our encouragement or preserva and preservation, or if we are encouraged on behalf of your encouragement, which is being produced in the endurance of those same sufferings, by which we are also affected, that our hope for you is steadfast, knowing that just as you are partners of the sufferings, in that manner also are the encouragement. When we are afflicted, and we withstand our affliction, 
we know that we will be rewarded for it at some point in time. Not necessarily in this life. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourning, because they shall be comforted. And we who, we, we who have our eyes open to what's going on in this world, we are indeed those who are mourning today. Blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. And the truly meek are those who subject themselves to the word of God. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they shall be satiated. Blessed are those having mercy, because they shall be mercied. They shall be given mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, because they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who uphold the word of God, because they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here James reinforces the idea in 4.10. Humble yourself before the prince, before Christ, and he shall exalt you. The meek are those who humble themselves before God, not before their fellow men. Although we should act towards our fellow man with humility, that humility many of us use so that people will like us, so that we could be popular, so that we could convince people and sway them to our cause. And men who act in that manner, they're always compromisers, wanting to be liked by everyone. The meek are truly those who humble themselves before God, subject ourselves to his word, and seek to serve him, and he will take care of us. Verse 11. Do not slander one another, brethren. He slandering a brother or condemning his brother slanders the law and condemns the law. Now, if you condemn the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And the word kataleo, I'm sorry, katalaleo, the Greek word, the verb in its weakest sense, means to talk or blab about somebody. In its stronger sense, it means to make evil reports about another. Verse 12. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Now who are you who is judging him near to you? His kinsman associate. The phrase, him near to you, usually translated as neighbor in the King James and other versions can only refer to a fellow flock member. Now, none of this means that we should not correct each other. Rather, James tells us in chapter 5 that we should indeed correct each other, where he says, My brethren, if one among you should stray from the truth and one should correct him, you must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save his soul from death, and shall cover a multitude of errors. We do not condemn our brethren. The real sense of the word judge is it is used here. Rather, we seek to correct them when they do wrong. 
Paul explains in Galatians chapter 6, Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in a spirit of meekness, watching yourself lest you also may be tested. We can all fall into error. When our brother errs, as Paul explains in Timothy, we should redress our brother personally. And if he doesn't listen, we go to a second or a third witness and have those people witness our redress of our brother. And if he still doesn't listen, we have to go to the assembly and inform the assembly that the brother is unrepentant. That is the manner which we use to correct our brother. And if he still doesn't listen, and the assembly knows he is wrong, they should put him out. They should disassociate themselves with him. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Put the evil out from among you, and God will judge them. Romans 4, 14, 14, 4.4. Who are you to be judging another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he shall stand. Indeed, the prince is able to establish him. All Israel shall be saved. And therefore we should not judge or condemn our brethren, but only correct him from the word of God. And if he refuses correction, then we should disassociate ourselves with him. That is scriptural. James 4.13 Come on, those now saying, today or tomorrow we shall go into this here city and we shall spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Those who do not know what condition your life is in tomorrow. For you are as vapor appearing for a short time and then disappearing. Instead of which you are to say, if the prince or the Lord desires and we shall live, then we shall do this or that. In other words, every plan in our lives should first consider the will of God. And nothing is assured for us by ourselves. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? And the response, all flesh is as grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, because the spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Verse 16. But now you boast in your pretense. Any such reason to boast as this is wicked. Therefore he knowing to do good and not doing it, for him it is error. We boast in our pretenses. 
in our plans and our own empty and worldly assurances. Rather, we know that we should be seeking the will of our God and not our own fleshly desires. We should not boast about what we plan to do tomorrow or the next day or next year. We should only hope to please God and that he will bless the plans that we do make if they are in accordance with his will. We shouldn't live life as if we're in control. We should live our lives knowing that God is in control and hoping that we could use those lives to do good. That's the point that James is making here. James chapter 5. Verse 1, come on, those who are wealthy now, weep, crying out upon your coming hardships. Your wealth is putrefied and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion shall be for a testimony to you and it shall eat your flesh as fire you have saved up for the last days. How does this not describe all those who insist on working hard for themselves and squirreling away whatever they can for some future unforeseen disaster imagined by men? They will always find a way to justify storing up gold, silver, and supplies, such as an excess of guns, an excess of ammunition, years' worth of food. They store their wealth in caves and huts in the wilderness, planning to flee for refuge when the hour comes. No matter how they try to justify what they do, it is wrong because their faith is in their own devices and not in Yahweh their God. Christians are to hold their heads up high when the hour of judgment comes because their redemption is nigh. Last week I had read the parable of the man who had a storehouse and had too many goods for his storehouse, so he ripped it down and built another one so that he could fit everything he had into a storehouse that was large enough that he could sit back and relax for the years to come. We have trained ourselves to have those same nest eggs today, and that shows a a, a distrust in God. The man who saved up many years' worth of excess goods in a storehouse that he had to build to hold them, his life was required of him at that moment. And all of his plans went to naught. At Luke twelve twenty four, Yahshua Christ says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls, better than the birds? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's wife consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? 
And he said, this I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, there's nothing wrong with planting a garden and canning up the produce for use throughout the year. That is stewardship. That's what we're supposed to do with the properties that God gives us. That's how we're supposed to take care of ourselves. But if you have more than you need, if you have more than you could use, certainly in, in a reasonable period of time, if you, have, you, you don't need six years' worth of food, you don't need, four, you don't need three years' worth of food, if you have more than you need, you would better consider your brethren. You'd better consider those hungry white people, those young single mothers with white children in your community, or those young, sing those young families that, that are trying to raise up children that are struggling because they're underemployed. You better consider them before squirreling away your excess for yourself. And the same goes with money. You don't need $3 million to retire on. Because God may well require your life of you before you ever get to enjoy any of those labors. James 5.4 Behold, the wages of the laborers reaping your fields, which have been withheld by you, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have entered into the ears of the prince of armies. Instead of squirreling away riches, give that excess which you have gained by God's good grace to your kin who are near to you, who do not have enough for their daily needs. Look to be a good steward of the things that God gives you. If you grow rich through your business, perhaps you should consider, as James is saying here in verse 4, that you have not paid those who work for you fairly enough. That's why James says to the rich man that the wages of the laborers working for him have been withheld. For example, if you made a half million dollars operating a business with 10 employees, and they only earned $25,000 each that year, perhaps you should consider doubling their wages. You'll still make a good amount of money and your employees will be a lot better taken care of. In other words, if you're getting wealthy, you may not be doing a good job stewarding what Yahweh has given you. And you should reconsider the way you live your life. You have lived luxuriously and lewdly upon the earth. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who did not oppose you. If you have an excess of life's necessities and your brother has want, how do you not murder your brother? If you are wealthy and there is a needy white family in your community, how are you a good steward over what God has given you? The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness of it. Therefore, what Yahweh dispenses to us 
we should seek to do well with. We shouldn't seek to hoard it for ourselves with greed. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with good business acumen. But don't be like the Jew. Exodus chapter 16, verse 17. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. Some of us have the ability to gather more than others. And when they did meet it with an omer, in other words, they measured out what they gathered, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack after they measured everything out. They gathered every man according to his eating. They measured it out fairly so that the entire community would eat. Is that communism? No. Is that a godly form of socialism? We have to look out for our brother. So to some extent, socialism, if you want to call it that, is Christian. It absolutely is. But looking out for our brother, we're looking out for ourselves. By keeping our community strong, we are helping ourselves. Our short-sightedness and our greed and our belief that we get to keep and, and should have the right to keep everything that God has gifted us with. Well, well, that might be fair, but we're not looking out for ourselves. If I have $10 million and everybody around me is starving, I'm not looking out for myself. I'm going to get a knife in my back. If I have three sons and I'm a very wealthy man and I underpay employees raising up daughters for my son to marry... Well, well, then I'm screwing myself in the long run. That there's a lot more to community and, and to caring for one another than meets the eye. When we don't encourage good community, when we refuse to be good stewards of the gifts of God, then we're hurting ourselves and our own immediate families and our descendants in the long run. When we are good stewards... Do we not think that God would reward us even more? Surely he would. James 5, 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the prince. Behold, the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, having patience for it, until he should receive the early and the late. You also have patience. Establish your hearts because the coming of the prince has approached. The coming of Christ has approached. Do not bemoan, brethren, against one another in order that you would not be judged. Behold, the judge stands at the door. Like Paul, James taught that the return of Christ was imminent because we all should conduct ourselves as though it is already here. We should all conduct ourselves as though it is imminent. Yet, there are many, even in Christian identity, who doubt an actual physical return of Christ. However, in Acts 1.11 we read, Men Galileans, why, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Yahshua who is taken up from you into the heaven... Thusly he shall come in the manner which you have beheld him going into heaven. 
There are many other scriptures which teach a physical return of Christ, yet, of course, this does not negate any obligation that we have to be obedient to his word. To be obedient to good Christian principles is absolutely necessary. That is acting as if his return is imminent. And that would heal our communities. That would heal our nations if we acted in that manner. As a unit, as a collective group, as a race. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Yahshua had died and rose up in this manner, Yahweh also through Yahshua will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection. The epistle of Jude, verse 14. And Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied to these things, saying, Behold, the prince has come with ten thousand of his saints, to execute judgment against all, and to convict every soul for all of their impious deeds, which they committed impiously, the destruction of our enemies, and for all of the harsh things which the impious wrongdoers have spoken against him. Matthew twenty four thirty. And at that time shall the sign of the Son of Man appear in the heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and much effulgence. And he shall send his messengers of the great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from out of the four winds, from the ends of the heavens under the extremities of them. The heaven and the earth shall pass, but my word shall by no means pass. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows not the messengers of the heavens, nor the Son, except the Father only. His imminent return and his vengeance upon all of our enemies, we should treat those, always treat those things as if they are imminent and expect to see them at any moment. If we act in that manner, we'll be doing the things that we should do to care for our brethren, and to assist in the building of our race. And it's disgraceful that Christian identity pastors should have any care for anybody but the Adamic race. James 5, verse 10. Take as an example, brethren, all ill-suffering and of patience, those prophets, uh, I'm sorry, take as an example, brethren, of ill-suffering and of patience, those prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord. Behold, we are blessed who are enduring or who are abiding. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you know the accomplishment of the prince, that the prince is very affectionate and compassionate. The endurance of Job. And I'll quote from Job 1, verse 8. And Yahweh said unto Satan, the adversary, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God, and eschews evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? and around his house, and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. 
but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of Yahweh. Yet Satan, the adversary, not necessarily a ghoul, not necessarily a creature with horns and a pitchfork, right? That's ridiculous. Satan, the adversary, was discredited because Job withstood his trial, and Job never did curse God. Neither did Job claim innocence or blame God for his trials, as Job's so-called friends had often beckoned him. Rather, Job knew of the greater reward to come, where he said in chapter 19, and I'll quote from verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins or my organs be consumed within me. That's the Christian promise. James 5.12 But before all, my brethren, do not swear, not even on heaven or on the earth, nor any other oath, but it must be from you the yes, yes, and the no, no, in order that you would not fall under judgment. Christians should take no oath. There is no such thing as a Christian oath. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto Yahweh thine oaths. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great kings. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. When a man says no, he should mean no, and when he says yes, he should mean yes. He should be honest and direct in his communication. He should not have to swear. As Paul says at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, we were bought for a price, and we are not our own. Therefore, we, being mere men in the hands of God, cannot guarantee the efficacy of any oath because we know not what plans Yahweh has for us tomorrow. Christians should not swear. James 5.13 One who suffers ill among you must pray. One who is cheerful must sing. One who is sick among you must summon the elders of the assembly, and they shall pray for him, anointing him with olive oil in the name of the prince. And the prayer of the face shall save the afflicted, and the prince shall raise him, 
And if an error may have been committed, or a sin, it shall be remitted for him, forgiven. Therefore acknowledge your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The entreaty of the righteous being employed prevails much. It doesn't prevail always, it prevails much. Yes, we may join together and pray and have faith that our sick brethren will recover. And at times we will prevail. But we should not become discouraged if they do not recover. Neither should we expect healing to be miraculously immediate, even if that is sometimes the case. Yes, Christ raised Peter's mother-in-law immediately. He raised the dead child of the centurion. He raised the dead Lazarus. And later, Peter and John healed the lame man immediately, and, and Christ healed countless people. And with the other apostles, they healed many other people. All of this was a sign of the truth of the gospel in the first century, so that the report would be spread. Even then, there were times when men fell sick, and they did not recover immediately. In Acts chapter 20, a young man fell out of a third floor window. And Paul, running down to him, brought him up immediately. Yet, in Philippians chapter 2, we see that Epaphroditus was afflicted with a prolonged illness, which prevented him from visiting Philippi. And Paul wrote about it, and Paul knew about it, and Paul was there. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see that Paul had to leave Trophimus behind in Miletus due to an illness which he had. There are times when we are, when, when we are ill, when we are sick because we need to be humbled. For reason, Paul's eyesight wouldn't be cured, right? There are times when we are sick because we have plans that are not commensurate with what Yahweh has planned for us. There are times when we are sick because God is calling us to him. And there's no way out of that sickness. And there are times when we are sick because God in his mercy wants us to know the power of his mercy and we recover. There are many different reasons why men fall ill. Yet we should, in any and all cases, display our love for each other by caring for one another in our illnesses as well as when we are in good health. So we can only hope to cure our sick brethren. We can only hope to be able to pray and God will cure our sick brethren is how I should word that. But it's not always going to succeed and, and we should bear that in mind and not lose faith when the sick do not recover. James 5.17 Elijah was a man of like nature with us. And in prayer he prayed for it not to rain. And it did not rain upon the earth for three years and six months. And again he prayed, and the heaven had given rain, and the earth sprouted her fruit. From 1 Kings 17.1 And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, 
as, the, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be do nor rain these years, but according to my word. And from 1 Kings 18, 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Prayer exhibits our faith in God that we can abide in him and await his mercy. Of course, prayer has many other reasons. And surely it is very powerful. But we should not lose faith when our prayers are not fulfilled, right? Because very often the will of God and the will of man are two different things. And as Paul says, we don't always know what we should pray for. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. God's mind is already made up. Christ prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane for an example. And when his situation didn't change after a short time, he acknowledged that he had to accept the will of God, that things had to be as they were, and that he had to undergo the suffering for which he was destined. And of course, he knew that all along in advance. But nevertheless, he prayed for our example so that we should know what to expect in prayer. And when we could get what we want is when our will is in accordance with the will of God because it's what God wants that's going to be done. We have to mold ourselves to his will and then we will understand why we have to face certain things. My brethren, if one should stray from the truth and one should correct him, if one among you should stray from the truth and one should correct him, you must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins or a multitude of errors. We can save each other from sin by telling each other the truth about sin. We can save our brethren from sin, from trial, from destruction, by showing them the truth of the way and the word of God, if indeed they choose to listen. That concludes my James, my, my commentary on the epistle of James. I hope to see you back here next week. I thank you for listening tonight. I pray that you find this edifying. Next week I will cover um, probably one of the minor prophets. I haven't made my mind up yet. I'll think about it over the weekend. I'll be here tomorrow night with Heirs of the Covenant. And I'll be here to discuss a few other things also. I'll spend at least a few minutes... Once again, stressing that the gospel of God says that all of the seed of the sons of Israel shall be saved, shall be preserved. Because if you're one of his children, sin will not be imputed to you. Christ came for sinners. There are certain clowns that call themselves pastors in Christian identity who are refuting the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11. 
And they're refuting the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45, as if Paul and Isaiah are liars. That is disgraceful. That's an absolute disgrace. We have to understand that the covenants of God are not contingent upon our individual behavior. Our reward in heaven is contingent upon our individual behavior. There is no doubt, but all of the children of Israel have that spirit of God and that eternal life which they were predestined for from the beginning. That is scripture. It's the leaven of the Pharisees. And this can be proven from the pages of Josephus. The leaven of the Pharisees put aliens in the kingdom of heaven and put the children of Israel into the lake of fire. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. And that we should avoid. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh and good night.